Today on the show, I will cover the movie Sin City, The Sandlot, and A Scanner Darkly. Yeah, that's right. It's three. Take that, expectations. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for tuning in, I do appreciate it. Uh, Today on the show, we've got a few movies to talk about, but as always, I'm going to cover some very brief topics to kind of ease into the subject matter at hand. As I've mentioned in the past, I have some eye issues, you know, things that I've had uh, doctors treating me for at every turn for the last six years. I, I've got this this special contact, and you might know some people that, that have this. I, I've never met anybody that told me that they had this, but so it's what they call a rigid gas permeable contact, and it is, I mean, rigid, like legitimately, it does not regularly bend or be flexible at all, and it is, um, it is something that I have to fill up with saline solution, and I have to use a plunger to get it, like this little mini plunger thing, to get it into my eye and to take it out of my eye. The The biggest problems I have on a daily basis with it are the level of blurriness that I experience from having these contacts in, and I guess it's normal, especially for somebody with my kind of eye ailments. It's like you have to take the contact out and clean it every you know, every few hours, every several hours, something like that. I end up cleaning mine like two or three times a day. It's not that bad. It's not as bad as it used to be. Luckily, I get a lot of advanced warning for it. I, you know, I can recognize that, hey, my vision's going to be blurry in due time if I don't take care of this right now or don't take care of it soon. And so I'm never in a position where, you know, I'll be like driving and all of a sudden my eyes are so blurry I can't see, and then, you know, that doesn't happen, so so don't worry about that. So normally what I do is I always have the solution and stuff on hand so that I can change out, or, you know, clean out the contact and, and do what I need to do. I can stop at a rest area if I'm driving. I can stop, you know, just anywhere. I can even stop on the side of the road. It doesn't really matter. I, I mean, it is... Don't get me wrong, it is a great device. It's considered a like a prosthetic cornea, I guess is how they view it. It's also called a prose, which is uh, it's developed in Boston and it's basically just designed to serve as an artificial cornea for people with corneal damage like myself. It makes my vision so much clearer. It makes it so much easier for me to see at night. Uh, what I had going on before was just this like, bandage contact lens, which is just a, a giant lens that is re- regularly flexible, except, you know, it's double the size of a normal contact. Probably not quite double, but, you know, it's it's quite a bit larger than a regular contact, and it's very difficult to just pop into your eye. So, so you know, I have that going on every day, and I, and I just like to kind of pe- keep people abreast of what's, you know, like, my sister has asked me in the past, you know, 
what, you know, I was at her house and she was like, so what's your vision like now? Like, what's, what level of vision do you have? And I'm like, I mean, I can't tell if something is in HD or like 4K UHD or whatever. I can, I can watch pretty much anything in standard definition and be good with it. And she's like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm as, you know, I'm in that boat. And I was like, I guess I, I don't know how to explain it really. It's just things aren't as clear as they were before. Because I had contacts before I went in the hospital. And it was, it was a lot clearer than what, what I've got going on now. It's just, it wasn't as, you know, it's, it's not as crisp as it once was. I don't, I also, you know, I ha- I always carry around these artificial tears and these little individual use vials and I'll just, this is very rare that I do this, but I, it used to be, I would do it all the fucking time, but it was like, I would have to tilt my head back and do eye drops because my eyes would dry out so bad that I couldn't help it. And I've actually gotten to the point where I don't do the drops as much anymore. I wouldn't even necessarily say my eyes don't dry out as much anymore, but they, I basically have come to terms with it. And like, I just straight up don't blink because blinking is the biggest problem I have with these contacts is it's like when I first pop the contact into my eye, I can blink and do that regularly for a few minutes, but after a while, I have to start leaving my eye open and let the surface of my eye dry out, and I don't know why, but that seems to fucking work, and it's, but it's not, it's not an ideal situation. So I guess now that I have gotten you guys all, you know, in a super good mood, I'm going to talk about uh, our first movie, which is Sin City. Uh, released on April 1st, 2005, no joke. Uh, director Robert Rodriguez, he made the uh, the Mexico trilogy, so you got El Mariachi, you got Desperado, and you got Once Upon a Time in Mexico. He made From Dusk Till Dawn with George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino. Uh, the Faculty, which I honestly forgot was even a movie until I was looking this guy up. He has done multiple Spy Kids movies, which, think about that what you will. He made The Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl, which I've heard of from internet memes regarding nostalgia. And I, I always get bummed out when I see memes that, like, want you to be nostalgic for something that is too new for you to be, you know, if you're me... You can't be nostalgic about Bob the Builder because Bob the Builder wasn't around when I was a kid, you know? So, anyway, Robert Rodriguez also directed Planet Terror, which was the other half of the project he did with, with Quentin Tarantino called the Grindhouse uh, movies. Uh, he And then he made Machete and Machete Kills, which actually were just, like, joke previews in, well, in the, the Grindhouse movies. He also made the sequel to Sin City, which is called Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. And he made Alita Battle Angel, which I actually really enjoyed Alita Battle Angel. It was a very solid movie, and it, you know, I'd love for them to make a sequel if they're going to do that. Uh, So they also, there's this big hoopla about um, Frank Miller was credited as a director on this film, and... He didn't, I mean, he was basically like a dedicated consultant because 
he wrote the graphic novels that these movies or this movie is about. Uh, he did. I don't. I don't really buy that he did much real directing. But basically, like Robert Rodriguez gave up his seat with the Directors Guild to get Frank Miller's name put on as a uh, you know a co-director on this movie. Which I'm like, okay. I mean, do what you want to do, but. Wow. Uh, Frank Miller went on to direct another movie, but in, in this one, he was actually, like, sole director, and it's called The Spirit. Fucking terrible. Just worst fucking movie you'll ever... It, it was like, you took the, the elements from Sin City that were cool, and you tried to just throw them on top of another story, and it didn't really work super well. So, I mean, there was that. It, it wasn't ideal, but, you know, whatever. Uh, so, as I mentioned, Frank Miller, you know, he wrote the graphic novels for Sin City. I believe there were seven of them, and I, I've read these. It's been a long time. I don't remember them super well. He also wrote The Dark Knight Returns, which is, like, one of, if not the greatest Batman graphic novels of all time. And it's also one of the greatest graphic novels of all time. He also wrote Batman Year One, which is like, you know, as you might guess, the first year of Batman's story. He wrote uh, Daredevil. He wrote Wolverine. You know, he just wrote these stories, and they were they were titled this, and they kind of, it aggravates me because it makes them really difficult to find. You know, you have to basically search Frank Miller, Daredevil, Frank Miller, Wolverine, you know, just to find where these things are. He's made a bunch of DC and Marvel stories, but the thing is, is like most of the time his stories aren't considered canon. And if you're not familiar with comic book lingo or like just universe, like fictional universe lingo, canon means like if you're if you're in the canon of Star Wars, for instance, you are in the actual continuity and the stories are, the, the stories that you have are real in that universe and they exist in regard to other things that happen in that universe, okay? But with his, he's making these, like, standalone stories that aren't really actually valid by the standards of the universe that they're set in, right? So, it's a little wild there, but first and foremost with this stupendous cast, we have... Mickey Rourke, who plays Marv. Uh, Marv is... He's quite the badass. I mean, he's a very, very awesome character. I mean, he, he just kicks so much ass in this movie. It's just so great. And he's just... He's fucking relentless. And he's just... Oh, man, he's fucking awesome. Mickey Rourke was in a movie called Double Team. Uh... At the end of the 90s with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman, which it was as good of a movie as you might expect it to have been. He was in The Rainmaker with Matt Damon. He was in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, which is a Robert Rodriguez movie. Uh, he was in Man on Fire, which if you ever want to watch a movie about Denzel Washington going on a rampage, fucking check it out. Uh, he was in... Domino with Kira Knightley. He was in The Wrestler, which was a solid drama. You know, it was a pretty good movie. Uh, he was also the villain in Iron Man 2. He played Whiplash. 
so there's a movie called Nine and a Half Weeks from the 80s that was one of his early movies, and I think it's got Kim Basinger in it. And I don't know if Kim Basinger is, like, if she got nude for the movie, but, like, I've never I've never seen, like, I, I've only ever seen parodies of the sex scene from Nine and a Half Weeks. I've seen it parodied in Hot Shots, the, the Top Gun parody movie. So, I mean, I, I kind of want to see that. I mean, on the off chance that Kim Basinger is naked, I mean, yeah, but... I don't know about the rest of the movie. I haven't really heard anything else great about it. Uh, I guess moving right along, we've got Clive Owen, who plays Dwight. Um, he was in, you know, he's he used to be in, for at the beginning of the 2000s, he was in a ton of shit. And then all of a sudden, he just fell off the face of the fucking earth. He was in The Born Identity. He was in a movie called Inside Man, which is really solid. Uh, he was in Children of Men, which is about like, the last woman on Earth to get pregnant or something like that, like, or a woman gets pregnant while everyone else on Earth is barren or something. He was, and this is, I think, was the beginning of the end for Clive Owen, but he was in a movie called Shoot 'Em Up, and I watched this movie thinking, man, I, I want to watch, like, a, a good mindless Shoot 'Em Up type movie. Why don't I go with Shoot 'Em Up with Clive Owen? And let me tell you, Mindless does not begin to describe how fucking stupid that movie was, but it's just cartoonishly bad. It was it was stupid the whole way. I just I couldn't I couldn't really get into it. He was also in another shitty movie called Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, which ugh, I mean they covered it on How Did This Get Made. It was it was not good. So next up, and I am I'm trying to chug along here, t- you know, trying to cover three movies today. I'm, I'm going to make it happen. Uh, Bruce Willis, you know, I've talked about Bruce Willis before on the, uh, Unbreakable episode, but he plays Hardigan. He's, uh, he's just great. He's one of my all-time faves. Just love Bruce Willis. Uh, Jessica Alba is in this movie. She, she never really went anywhere in her career. I don't feel like she never was really that successful. She was in things of note, but she was not she was not spectacular. What I remember her most from is the show Dark Angel from I think the late 90s. It was like set in the future and it was really fucking edgy and stupid. She was in the two Fantastic Four movies that they originally came out with. She played the Invisible Woman or uh, Sue Storm, I think is the real name. I've I've seen half of the first one and I couldn't finish it. And the Silver Surfer is cool, but it was not enough having the Silver Surfer in the second one to make me watch the second one or the rest of the first one. She was in a movie with Paul Walker called Into the Blue. She was in a movie about a some kind of dancer, I think, with, called Honey. And then um, I, I made a note that said, Her filmography is a desolate wasteland of movies I've mostly never heard of slash wanted to see. Well put, Brandon, from the past. Okay, so Alexis Bledel is in this movie, and I'm not going to go into the filmography of every single person on these movies because it would be a lot to to put together and to, to enunciate. But here, Alexis Bledel, I just want to say that between the two Gilmore Girls, Lauren Graham is 
undoubtedly, in my mind, the hotter Gilmore girl. Alexis Bledel still looks, like, childlike to me, and I just can't, I can't get there with, like, finding her good-looking, like, on that level. We've got a great villain in Powers Booth, who is not in enough stuff. He's in the movie, uh... Sudden Death with Jean-Claude Van Damme, which, by the way, if you ever look up the Parks and Rec deleted scene where Chris Pratt sings a song about the movie Sudden Death with Jean-Claude Van Damme, it's worth your time. Check it out. So Rosario Dawson's in this movie. We got Benicio Del Toro. He's another villain type. Michael Clark Duncan's another villain type. Josh Hartnett is briefly in this movie but he is in it and he is solid uh Rutger Hauer is in this movie for a sliver of a second Michael Madsen is in this movie as uh Bruce Willis's partner Brittany Murphy we got Nick Offerman in a very bit part Marley Shelton is very brief in this movie she the only reason I remember her and, you know, this is the connective tissue, but she was Wendy Peppercorn in the Sandlot movie. And that's the thing I, I always like look and I'm like, God, who is that chick? She's really good looking. Why do I not know who the fuck that is? And then I realize, oh, it's Wendy Peppercorn. Fuck yeah. How about that? Elijah Wood is also in this movie. He doesn't really say much at all. Um, Frank Miller has a bit role in the, the movie as a priest. And, you know, I, I just got to say, like, the casting that they did in this movie was amazing. I mean, they did a really great job, especially, like, Mickey Rourke as Marv was such a great call. He looks, I mean, he's really made up, but he, he really acts like you think Marv should act. A couple of notes I wanted to make that I saw in the, the, the trivia section was apparently Johnny Depp was going to play the role of Jackie Boy and it ultimately went to Benicio Del Toro. Apparently Johnny Depp had scheduling conflicts and wasn't able to make it, which is fine. I mean, what can you do? But I I do think I, I made mention of this uh, when I was taking notes. I was like, um, you know, if Johnny Depp would have gotten this role, I might have been able to understand what Benicio Del Toro's character was saying more frequently because Benicio Del Toro is like the most notoriously mumbly actor out there. Like you you can never fucking understand him. Leonardo DiCaprio actually turned down the role of Rourke Jr., uh, Rourke Jr. is just, he's like the villain of Bruce Willis's story, you know, because this, this story, this movie is split into basically like three stories, you know, one's, one's the Dwight story with Clive Owen, one's the Marv story with Mickey Rourke, and then one's the Hardigan story with Bruce Willis, okay? But Leonardo DiCaprio was offered the role of, of Rourke Jr. and, and shot it and said no. In case you didn't know this about Sin City, uh, it's a very stylized, cool movie. It is shot in black and white, but there are things that are digitally made color, you know, like certain elements, certain things, you know, like somebody's getting pulled over by a police officer and all of a sudden, you know, their lights are blue and red, but they're, you know, 
but it's black and white all around it, you know? It's a it's a very cool to look at movie. It's it's because the graphic novel was black and white with those small elements of color just to accentuate certain features. There is one minor story outside of the three main stories, and it's got Josh Hartnett and Marley Shelton in it, and it, it is very it really sets the tone for what kind of cool ass movie you're gonna check out, you know? I just fucking love it. I I can't get enough of it. So apparently Robert Rodriguez shot the scene with Josh Hartnett and Marley Shelton in one day. That was before Frank Miller had actually agreed to let the graphic novels be adapted. And so it was used to show Miller how faithful to the comics they would remain. And I mean, that's pretty fucking awesome. I mean, that's... It's a good way to do it. I mean, if you want... It probably didn't cost Robert Rodriguez very much money. And it was probably really fucking... uh, Just a passion project for him. So the story of Marv is the hard goodbye. The Hardigan story is that yellow bastard. And Dwight is the big fat kill. Basically, any time in this movie where you get Marv fighting people... It's fucking badass. It's just, it's fucking cool. He's, he's got these like mental issues where like he needs to take these pills to kind of keep him, you know, grounded in reality and he keeps forgetting stuff and you know, he's just, but like at one point in the movie, Clive Owen crosses paths with Marv and you know, his internal monologue says that Marv would have been great, you know, thousands of years ago as a gladiator in the arenas and they would have just thrown him girls like, you know, like Jessica Alba's character or whatever. And it's like, but it's like, he just seems so out of place in today's world. There's also, you know, the fact that, I mean, basically Hardigan, it's just like the classic, like down on his luck, end of his career cop type, you know, that's trying to take down one last, Bad guy, doesn't want to see bad things happen, shit like that. The the scene where Clive Owen, Dwight, is in the car with Jackie Boy, Benicio Del Toro's character. This scene, you know, they're in the car and it's just a very trippy scene. It was directed specially by Quentin Tarantino, which is really cool, um... Apparently, like, Robert Rodriguez did the music for Quentin Tarantino at one of his movies, and he did it for a dollar, and then Tarantino did the directing for the one scene of this movie for a dollar or something, you know, just because they're friends or whatever. So, obviously, you know, the color scheme thing in this movie, that's that's the big selling point. I mean, it's, it's so cool to look at. this. This movie is just awesome to look at, and it's... Um, I, I like the way, because they don't, they don't really do this to great effect in a lot of other movies, but it's, the movie is read like a comic book. It, it feels like when the characters are talking, they are coming straight out of, out of a comic book and not, you know, I mean, it's just, it's very, very awesome the way they do that. Um, and, and it, it never seems, even though like, obviously there's some elements of any graphic novel that would sound silly in real life, 
because this movie commits to it so fully, you don't lose anything. You know, you don't, there's, there's no like winking at the camera. There's no, they're, they're all straight face. They're all playing it right. And it's, it's fucking awesome. I love it. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like the casting is probably the best part of this movie. It's got such an immensely large cast and they just, they did an amazing job picking the right people to play these roles. Like I said, I've read the graphic novels. The graphic novels are very well written. They're very, I mean, it's just like, they're edgy and cool, man. Like, that's just all there is to it. And they're very faithful. Like, they used they used the graphic novels basically as storyboards for how they were going to shoot the movie because they wanted them to be so comic accurate. And the other thing I have to mention is, like, not only are the visuals cool, but the visuals have held up. You know, this was made that long ago, you know, it was made in 05, I think it was, and it's just, yeah, it was, it was April of 2005, and honestly, they did such a good job of, of making it look the way it needed to, to stand the test of time. I don't go back and look at this movie now and think, wow, that looks really fucking cheesy and shitty, the way they did the visual effects in Sin City. No, they did a fucking great job, and I fucking love it. One criticism, and I don't know if I'd call this a criticism, but uh, I, I get the feeling seeping through in this movie that Frank Miller is exceedingly horny, and I, I guess we're all a little horny. It, I think the world just wants to deny people their horniness, and like they don't want to, they don't want to see it talked about, and it's like maybe that's. It's for the better that we talk about it. Maybe, you know, if, if more people were willing to talk about it, there would be more, you know, happiness in the world. Who knows? But anyway, that was that was a mild criticism. It just, it felt really horny, and that's, that's all there is to it. Very few women are seen on screen that are not treated like objects in this movie. They're kind of just... I mean, there are some well-written women, don't get me wrong, but, like, for the most part... They're all in, like, scantily clad clothing and shit like that. I mean, just not... I don't know. The sequel... I think... I feel like the sequel, they would have almost been better off, like, saying, Hey, we're gonna shoot all of this at once. We're going to shoot Sin City and then Sin City 2 back-to-back like Richard Donner did with the Superman movies. And we're going to release them... You know, within a couple of years of each other. But what they did was they released Sin City A Dame to Kill For several years later. And it lost a lot of the, like, it just wasn't as cool as the the original. And, it, and it's unfortunate. Uh, I would say another, another little critique would be this movie could have been three hours long easily and covered more of the stories in one movie. And I think maybe it was like marketability, like they didn't know if people would want to sit through that much of this kind of story. And I mean, because it could have been like five stories, you know what I mean? It didn't have to be two hours, 12 minutes or whatever it is, and or over two hours anyway. And, you know, it, it could have just been, you know, almost all the stories or, you know, even if they wanted to go so far as to trim the fat a little bit on some of the stories and then cram all of them in, but I think that might be a bad idea, so never mind on that. I think it's deliberately, this movie is kind of cartoonish. It's, it, I mean, it's 
obviously it's adapted from an animated story, you know, it's like a graphic novel. Um, but I mean, like things are deliberately silly and over the top. And I think that that turns a lot of people off. Like I remember trying, trying to show this movie to friends when I, when it came out and they were, they were like, this is fucking stupid. Like, why is, why is this like this? And it's like, well, it's a fucking, it's a fucking comic book, dude. Like, get the fuck over it. So apparently they're supposed to come out with a show for this, uh, this universe soon. I don't have any idea who's going to be in it or what network, you know, like streaming service it's going to be on or whatever, but I'm excited for that. I, cause I mean, like I said, the sequel was not very good and I'm really hoping that they do a better job on the show. Robert Rodriguez called this less of an adaptation and more of a translation to screen. So there are no screenwriting credits, which I think is pretty interesting. I mean, it's kind of awesome that that's the way they did it. Uh, many of the scenes were shot before any of the actors had even signed on for them. So, like, just to give you an idea, and it's weird. I mean, you can kind of tell something's a bit different about this movie when you're looking at it. But it's like to to say, like, okay, this this you know this whole scene was shot or this sequence was shot without this actor being present. Yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. Like, I watched it through that lens when I, you know, watched it for this episode, it really stood out as like, holy shit, this is, it's true. Like, I mean, Robert Rodriguez is saying like, this is, you know, he said at the time it was the way of the way movies were going to start going soon, you know, because of actor availability and stuff like that, where it's like, they can't get actors on set enough to shoot scenes like this together and so they just shot them in a way that it looked like they were on screen together, but they really weren't. Like, for instance, Mickey Rourke and Elijah Wood, they never met until the premiere of this movie, and they have a fight scene together, you know? So, like, they starred in a scene together, and they they didn't actually meet each other at all. They just shot the scenes, you know, they shot their portions of the scene separately, and that's what they did. Um, despite appearing in all three major stories, Brittany Murphy filmed all of her scenes in one day. It doesn't really surprise me. She's not doing a whole lot of heavy lifting on screen. I mean, she's she's solid in this movie. Rest in peace, Brittany Murphy. But um, I, I, it doesn't shock me that she was able to shoot all of her scenes that quickly. A majority of the movie was shot against green screen. As you may guess, if you watch this movie, it's pretty crazy. Uh, there were only four practical sets used. One was Katie's bar, one was Shelley's apartment, uh, Hardigan's cell, and the hospital in the epilogue. Pretty cool that they were able to accomplish as much as they were in this movie with having that little practical stuff. I always read through the IMDb trivia and I try and see, like, hey, what's this, you know... What's this going to be all about? You know, like, uh, wh what can I find? What nuggets can I find that are, like, interesting? And no matter what, I always find, like, the worst fucking tidbits on IMDb trivia. So this is this is what one said. At one point, Hardigan resists Nancy's advances, saying, I'm old enough to be your grandfather. While Hardigan, age 68, is old enough to be the grandfather of Nancy, age 19... In real life, Bruce Willis and Jessica Alba are only 26 years apart. So, like, f 
fucking great. Like, yeah, so he's old enough to be her father by a lot, and that's that makes it better, I guess. That, that makes it interesting, because they're really not that far apart. It's like, no, that's fucking stupid. Like, I mean, if they would have cast somebody older for the Hardigan part... And younger for... Because, I mean, I know Jessica All, but there's no fucking way she was 19 in this movie. Like, she she had been in way too much stuff in her career as an adult to be able to say that she was 19. But whatever. They don't really go too crazy flaunting that tidbit about her. But whatever. So the runtime of this movie was 124 minutes. So I was wrong. It's, it was 2 hours 4 minutes. Uh, the budget was $40 million, which seems very low to me. Uh, the worldwide gross to date was $160 million, which is great. I'm glad it was a success. Um, the IMDb rating is 8.0. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 77%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 78%. Personal rating for myself, 5 out of 5 stars. I fucking love this movie. So if you decide, this this movie is on HBO Max right now. It's a very good movie. I, di- I didn't notice if the sequel was on there. If you decide to watch the sequel, go into it with the lens of like, I'm going to be disappointed by this movie. You know what I mean? And then maybe you'll like it more because you, you don't have that high expectation. But it's just, it's not ideal. You know, like the way they have it set up, I mean... It just doesn't capture the the coolness of the original, you know? Moving on to our next film, because I have two more to do, and I am 45 minutes deep into this, but whatever. The Sandlot, which is uh, a movie that was released on April 7th, 1993. Uh, the director was David Mickey Evans, who is clearly super into baseball, he, uh, I mean, he made a movie called Radio Flyer, which I heard was good. The movie Ed is a movie where I think it's an orangutan plays baseball with Matt LeBlanc. And it, there's no way, there is no fucking way that that's a good movie. I, I might watch it just for the humor of how terrible it might be, but holy shit, that sounds bad. He made a movie called Terminal Entry. He made First Kid with Sinbad. He made Beethoven's Third and Fourth. He made a a movie that sounds pornographic called Barely Legal. He made one called Wilder Days and The Final Season, which is another baseball movie. You know, like, I, I, I honestly can't say that I was too super piqued in interest about seeing more of his movies, but, you know, whatever. As far as is the cast. I mean, most of the kids in this movie were relative unknowns when this movie came out and they I they they did a spectacular job. I can't deny that. So, you got Tom Guiri, I think that's how you say Guiri Guiri G U I R Y. Um he plays Scotty Smalls and obviously you've heard the You're Killing Me Smalls thing from this movie. Um, he was in Mystic River, which he would have been quite a few years older. I mean, like, he would probably have been, like, late teens, maybe, in this uh, in Mystic River. And that was the one with ridiculous plot synopsis that I talked about previously. Um, he was in Black Hawk Down, which is a solid fucking war movie. 
Uh, he was in The Revenant, which is a great fucking movie all around. Like, just very visual, very cool to look at. Fucking loved it. Uh, he was in U-571, which I think is about a submarine, and I've never seen it, and I've always heard about it. But I don't know that I actually want to see it that bad. Mike Vitar, or v- Vitar, plays Benjamin Franklin Rodriguez or Benny the Jet Rodriguez. Uh, he was only in Mighty Ducks 2 and 3, and apparently he didn't really want to act very much because he didn't have much on IMDb worth talking about. Uh, Patrick Renna plays Hamilton Ham Porter. He was in that movie, that soccer movie, The Big Green. He was in Son-in-Law as like the little brother, I think. Uh, He was in an X-Files episode that I love called Bad Blood. It's like one of the few comedic episodes of of the X-Files. And it's got just this really silly premise. It's just very funny. Chauncey Lepardi plays Michael Squints Polidorus. Which, by the way, I don't know who you grew up with. But not every kid that I grew up with had a little, you know, quote-unquote nickname in the middle of their... You know, in the, in the middle of their real name, where we would we would refer to them as as that. You know, he was in Freaks and Geeks, Father of the Bride, Casper, the one with Christina Ricci, who I've had a crush on since the movie Now and Then came out. Um, he was also in The Big Green, and he was in House Guest, which is another Sinbad movie. So then we kind of get on to the adults of this movie. We got Dennis Leary, who you're probably familiar with. He's he's actually kind of sort of famous. Um, he plays Bill, who is Scott Smalls's stepdad. He was in The Amazing Spider-Man as Captain Stacy. He's in the Ice Age movies. I think he's the saber-toothed tiger. Uh, he's in The Thomas Crown Affair, Suicide Kings, Wag the Dog, Small Soldiers, Demolition Man, Loaded Weapon 1. I still need to revisit Loaded Weapon 1 because I remember that being pretty fucking hilarious. Like, it poked fun at all the Lethal Weapon movies. Fucking great. Um, we got James Earl Jones, who plays the character of Mr. Myrtle. You might remember him from a little movie universe called Star Wars, where he voices Darth Vader. He also voiced Mufasa in both of the the Lion King movies, the I get the regular animated one and the computer animated ish one that came out recently. He was in The Hunt for Red October, Field of Dreams, Coming to America. Uh you know, just he I forgot how much shit he was in. Before I started looking him up, I I've, I had forgotten all about him. Um, him being in, like, Coming to America and stuff and, and Field of Dreams. Like, I, of course, I've never been a big Field of Dreams guy. Like, I, I like the movie okay, but I don't love it like some people love it. Uh, Karen Allen plays Smalls' mom, and she was in Raiders of the Lost Ark as Indiana Jones' love interest. Uh, so the basic premise of the Sandlot is you've got Scotty Smalls. He's, he's the new kid in town. He just moved there and, you know, he's a little nerdy. He's got like an erector set and he's, you know, staying inside mostly. 
He really doesn't know how to play baseball, but he knows that there are these kids that go, you know, go to this like makeshift baseball diamond and play. And so he goes there and sees if he can like hang around and maybe learn how to play from them or whatever. And then, you know, Benny, the Jet Rodriguez, he he takes him under his wing, basically. Like, he gives him a shot because they, you know, they need the extra guy anyway, as as Benny says. You know, of course, what what movie would this be if they didn't get into some kind of trouble, you know? So it, it's it's a lot of a lot of really fun, you know. I mean it's 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 a fun movie, you know what I mean? It's I you never get bored when you're watching it. It's just great. Um so some of the highlights of this this movie. Um, it, it showcases realistic childhood interactions and swearing because I know like when I was in school, I went to, mostly I went to a school that was like, so like my elementary school, I like all of the kids on the playground swore, you know what I mean? Every time they, I got a chance, they were swearing. Okay. And I mean, I went to this other school, an elementary school for fifth grade only, and those kids didn't, not only did they not swear, they would fucking go tell on you if you swore, you know, in close quarters, just like talking, you know what I mean? It's like, it was so fucking lame, it just pissed me off, but anyway, I mean, I always... I was always the swearing type, you know what I mean? I was, I, I've always, I've always said the fuck word, the shit word, you know, whatever. It, it's just better. Uh, this movie is also set in the 60s, uh, it, and it feels right. Uh, I'll get into a couple of idiosyncrasies or whatever you want to call them. You know, if, if this movie didn't look so... Like, so much like it was made with more modern equipment... I could have been confused and thought that this actually was shot in the 60s. Like, that's... They do a really solid job of making it look like it's set where it's supposed to be set. There's a scene where, you know, they have chewing tobacco because that's what all the cool big leaguers do. They, They go to the pool for one scene, which is a huge pivotal scene. It's like one of the most memorable scenes in this movie, if not the most memorable they also try and get into Mr. Myrtle's yard. I don't want to give away the whole plot, but, you know, they're trying to get into his yard for a reason and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there's a final chase scene. And it's all it's all very... It's fucking great cinema, guys. I just... I think that this movie stands out as being spectacular. What I, what I pointed out in my notes was that despite the fact that, like, like 90% of the scenes of this movie are with an all-child cast, you know, all kids that are, I'm guessing, between, like, 10 and 15, you know, all all in that age range, or at least they're meant to look like it. Everything, everything acting-wise, nothing feels off. They don't, they don't seem like they're shitty child actors and they're just reading lines to read lines, you know, they, like, they seem like they're really into it and they really want to sell what they're reading. It makes me feel like I want to love baseball despite not loving baseball much at all, which is reasonable, but you know, the interactions here, I mean, they're, they're so great. They're, they're so real feeling, you know what I mean? They're, they, 
it's it's like I talked about the kids swearing with each other. Like that feels so authentic to me because it's like they just they just say what kids say. You know what I mean? They don't they don't fucking mince words. They don't fucking do stupid stuff. Uh, my only criticisms of this movie are for one, I uh, I can never really know if I would love this movie quite as much if I had never seen it all my life and then I all of a sudden watched it today and determined if it was as, you know, tried to determine if it was as good as, as I really think it is. Um, another issue is the IMDb goofs section pointed out, and this is, you know, Benny's hat has an MLB logo on the back and the MLB didn't put logos on the back of their caps until 1992, despite the film being set supposedly in 1962. So basically, you know, that's just like a scathing indictment of the integrity of this film. I mean, if you can't get that right, you know, what? why are you even making movies, guy? Huh? Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention was Roger Ebert gave this three stars out of, I believe, four. That's that's how he ranks. But uh, he, he likened it to a summertime version of A Christmas Story, which, which makes me kind of like this movie less, honestly. But, you know, that's just, that's my cross to bear. Maybe one day I'll do an episode on how little I like A Christmas Story. So a few, a few trivia items, there, there aren't a ton of them, but... Um, older and younger brothers, uh, played Benny at, you know, his young age and his older age when he's playing pro baseball. Um, you know, Pablo Vitar and Mike Vitar are, you know, the two brothers. There is a great quote that goes, heroes get remembered, but legends never die. Follow your heart, kid. You can never go wrong. It's just, what a fucking perfect fucking quote. So I found out today that the director narrates the film and that's pretty cool because I knew it wasn't the same voice as cuz you see older Scott Smalls calling a baseball game and you you know you obviously hear young Scott Smalls and you know it's not going to be him cuz it's an adult man talking as a narrator and so apparently the director is is the narrator so that's pretty neat uh, despite mostly hot days while shooting the day of the pool scene, it was overcast, and the water was supposedly 56 degrees. The actors can be seen shivering, and Squint's teeth even chatter. Which, you can tell that they are fucking freezing. And I always wondered why that was, because I'm like, if it's supposed to be so fucking hot out that they can't stand it, and they've got to go to the pool instead of playing baseball, what's going on? So there's also a little nod. Um, there, in the scene where they're watching Wendy Peppercorn at the life uh, the lifeguard stand... She's like oiling and lotioning her her legs and whatever. And one of them says, she don't know what she's doing. She don't know what she's doing. And the other one says, yes, she does. She knows exactly what she's doing. And that's like direct quote from Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman, which I that's fucking great. I mean, it's funny because... The cart came before the horse for me on that one because I, I saw The Sandlot first and then I saw Cool Hand Luke long after. And I was I was always so happy that they like had that little in reference to it. Runtime of this movie was 101 minutes. The budget was 
$7 million. Worldwide gross, $34.3 million. IMD re-rating of 7.8. Rotten Tomato critic score, 64%. Rotten Tomato audience score, 89%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars, because that's... That's the way I do it. I just, I pick these movies. They're in my all-time faves. They're going to be five out of five stars 90% of the time. And I don't give a shit if you disagree with me. Okay. So, our last movie. And I'm this one's going to be the most brief. So, please don't get too exhausted with me right now. Uh, a Scanner Darkly is a movie from uh, July 7th, 2006. It's directed by Richard Linklater. He made such films as Bernie. He made the Before Trilogy, so Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight. Uh, Great fucking trilogy. Check it out sometime. Uh, He made School of Rock with Jack Black. He made Dazed and Confused, which had had Matthew McConaughey and Ben Affleck and a whole bunch of fucking up-and-coming actors. But it's a solid fucking movie. I really like it. Uh, A couple of movies he had that I want to see are Boyhood and Me and Orson Welles. This movie features Keanu Reeves, who you probably know from the Matrix movies or the John Wick movies or the Bill and Ted movies or Point Break or Speed or The Devil's Advocate, which is fucking terrible, 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 terrible. It also has Winona Ryder. Oh, by the way, Keanu Reeves' character's name is Bob Arctor. And then we have Winona Ryder, whose character's name is Donna Hawthorne. She was in, you know, she's been in a ton of stuff, but she's been in Little Women from the 90s. She's been in Heathers, Girl Interrupted, Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, Stranger Things, Mr. Deeds, Lucas. Which, by the way, Lucas is a solid movie. It's like kind of a teen movie, but it's like, it's got Corey Heem in the, in the title role. It's a good movie. It's I don't remember Winona Ryder in it at all. And I don't know how I feel about Winona Ryder, honestly. Like, I don't... I, You know, like, I was saying how... I was talking to somebody about Stranger Things and how she... I thought she was pretty good in that show. And I'd heard a lot of people say they thought she was really good in that show. And then when I talked to these other people, like, I think it was my... Maybe it was my sister and brother-in-law. And they basically said that she was horrible in that movie, or in that show, I should say. But what can you do? Uh, Robert Downey Jr. is in this movie. Uh, he plays James Barris. Uh, he, you know him as Iron Man from the Marvel movies. He was in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which, by the way, you need to fucking watch that movie. He was in the Sherlock Holmes movies that Guy Ritchie made. He was in Tropic Thunder. He uh, plays an Australian method actor who dresses up as a black guy. And it is more hilarious than you could ever imagine. Uh, He was in Due Date with Zach Galifianakis. He was in Bowfinger with Steve Martin. Home for the Holidays was a boring piece of shit movie that he was in in the 90s. He was in Chaplin where he played Charlie Chaplin and I never saw that one. I I wouldn't mind checking it out though. It could be good. Uh, he was in Air America with Mel Gibson and he was in Tough Turf with James Spader and I just watched that movie yesterday 
and it was fucking awful. Okay, Woody Harrelson. He plays Ernie Luckman. Uh, he, he was, you know, he's Woody Harrelson. He's in fucking everything. But, I mean, he could be the next, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon guy. He could be six degrees of Woody Harrelson. Uh, he was in True Detective, The People vs. Larry Flint, Natural Born Killers, Zombieland, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, Solo, The Star Wars Story, The Highwaymen, The Hunger Games Movies, No Country for Old Men, and a movie that I need to revisit, which is called White Men Can't Jump, about him and Wesley Snipes playing basketball. Fucking solid. I remember it being good. I wonder if it's still as good as I thought it was. You know, the basic plot of this movie is... It's a little confusing, but it's like, you know, basically they're... It's about drugs and, like, trying to to catch people doing drugs and all these great lengths that they'll go to to try and catch these people or how how bad drugs are and all this stuff. I mean, it's just... It's a little fucking ridiculous, but... Um, I mean, I would say the animation style of this movie was incredibly cool. Um, it's it's very realistically drawn, so it, it barely... I mean, it's just like... It's a stone's fr- throw away from being actual people in these scenes, you know? And, but it doesn't look off. They do a great job of, of capturing, you know, all of the, the looks of people. I, I wouldn't want too many movies to have this style, though, because I think it could be... The, the biggest problem is I don't know if you capture the expressions on the actors' face. You know, like, it doesn't come through as well. So, a lot of the, a lot of the elements of the plot, you know, they, they use the animation to their advantage. You know, there's like, a, there's like multiple scenes where they have like a thought bubble, like in a comic book. And they use that as like, a, okay, I'm going to see what's going on in this person's head right now. And then, you know, there there's, like, this weird thing where, like, Keanu Reeves is, and, like, a bunch of other people are wearing these suits to conceal their identity and to be able to, to emulate other people. And it, it's a little off-putting, but it, it's kind of cool, I guess. I would say the performances in this movie are, are pretty solid. They're pretty genuine. Specifically, Keanu and, and Robert Downey Jr. I can't tell... My sister always used to say that she can't picture Keanu Reeves as anybody other than Ted from Bill and Ted. And that's why she can't like see him as a good actor outside of that role. And I doubt she sees him as a good actor inside of that role. But, you know, I, I think I've come around to Keanu Reeves. I, I think he has a different kind of style about him and it's a little different to approach, but it's still it's still solid. I did I did find it interesting how the story kind of left you with a feeling of helplessness and you know you just you don't know where it's you know you don't feel like there's any way out you know what I mean and it they did a good job and that's obviously it's the point of the movie you know it's it's the whole drugs thing where it's like you're hooked on these drugs you can't get away from them nobody can help you blah 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 and, and then there are people that are trying to, like, put you in jail for using them. I, I did also mention uh, in my notes that, you know, it's the fact that it's animated does take something away from the impact the story has. I think that if this had been fully unanimated, real-life shit, I think it could have just been a better movie overall. And 
it might have had a better impact because the fact that you're making it a cartoon automatically pulls you out of the story a little bit. You know what I mean? You know that you're watching something that is not real. Um, the, so like, like I was talking about with the suits that they wear that make them look like other people. I, I said it, it was, it was unpleasant to look at them all the time. I didn't really care for that. Like I, I wish they could have figured out a better way to present that. So you didn't have to constantly be looking at these people that their entire body was changing identities all the time. Uh, I'm still, I'm still not sold on Winona Ryder. I don't know if I like her. I just don't fucking know. It, it didn't really feel like the story amounted to much, honestly. And I, I get what they were going for. Don't get me wrong. I, I understood. It was just not, maybe it wasn't for me. I mean, that could very well be. I usually have trouble getting into these drug related movies. Apparently, Robert Downey Jr. wrote down the lines on post-it notes that he was supposed to read for, you know, when he was going to perform them, and he'd put them on the walls so he could read them during scenes, and the animators just, you know, animated over them and didn't really give two shits, so I guess that worked out pretty good. I don't know why all the actors didn't do that. Filming was completed in 23 days, although I've seen conflicting, you know, like, I've read six weeks in 23 days, but... According to uh, IMDb, filming was completed in 23 days and animation took 18 months, which is a lot. The runtime of this movie was 100 minutes, budget 8.7 million, worldwide gross 7.7 million, so not a success. IMDb rating of 7.0, Rotten Tomato Critics score 68%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 74%. Personal rating for moi, I would say three out of five stars. I just could not get into it. I don't think I'll revisit this movie ever. It was just not that good. But I I had heard people talk about it and say that it was like solid or whatever. But, you know, what can you do? So I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in today. It's uh, much appreciated. And uh, I always uh, look forward to sharing my thoughts on movies with you guys. Please feel free to get a hold of me. Let me know if you have a movie you really want me to cover, uh, good or bad. I'm kind of leaning towards bad more frequently now, but worse comes to worse. You know, I I just do another good movie and I love it. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'll uh, see you on the flip side. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr.